Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online. WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM, downtown Asheville on Wall Street. Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to reach me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. And I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look. Today I have a returning guest. Her name is Barry Barton. Barry and I have known each other for many, many years since the actually the early 80s in Asheville when Asheville, North Carolina was beginning its rise into maturity, which it now has achieved and then some actually. And the reason Barry's on today with me is because I have been working with Barry. She invited me to help her choose speakers for the upcoming TEDx Asheville event which will be happening on March the 15th, 2024. Barry is the director of TEDx Asheville, among other things. She's a dancer, an artist, a community activist. Right now, her focus is on TEDx Asheville, so our focus also is on TEDx Asheville in this interview, and we'll see where it goes. So, Barry Barton, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Wonderful to be back. We are in the middle right now, you and I and some other collaborators that you've invited, we're in the middle of choosing the TEDx Asheville speakers. I have talked to a lot of people who do many different TED events, and the way they choose the speakers, very different from event to event. You have a terrific model for choosing TEDx speakers. I would love for you to start by giving us an overview of your vision for TEDx Asheville and then how these speakers end up getting on the stage. And the reason why is because people listening might be interested in becoming a TEDx speaker somewhere in their community. So what's up? Okay. So the vision for TEDx Asheville has been transforming and forming and re-transforming over the last two or three years. So I started in 2021 and it was my very first And so it was kind of like the open road. I can pretty much do what I want. And what I did is I decided very early on of some important values to walk or certain visions to walk. And one of them is about making this a part of the Asheville community. And we use that language a lot, community. But it really means something. It really, you have to land it in some very concrete ways. So one of the ways that I wanted to create community was inviting part of the community, folks from like, I have UNCA students, I teach public speaking at UNCA, so I had two of my UNCA students, all the way up to some leaders in our community, to some entrepreneurs in the community, some coaches in our community, 
all walks of life, women, men, diversity, ways of seeing the world, different insights and perspectives, seeing and viewing the applications. And so I turned it to them to rank, review, um, to leave some comments so that the voice of our community is part of making that choice of who's going to land on that stage. It also adds a very, very clear boundary of lack of favoritism that could happen in this community uh, because we are a small community. We know each other very well and it adds an overarching tent of integrity which is so important to me as a leader and working with people that they feel like they are being treated fairly. So when you first started directing TEDx Asheville, it had been around for a while. What's the history for TEDx Asheville here? It had been around since 2009 and it had had a variety of different leaders, uh, organizers or the person in my place. And I, I wasn't really involved during that time, so I don't know the inner workings of those organizations um, and how they did things. So at that level, in terms of the selection process, I don't know their process. I do know that, you know, I just had a conversation with this woman who just is going to launch TEDx Brevard which is phenomenal, this tiny little town in the mountain. And she made invitations. She just reached out and invited people to join the stage. Yeah, like you said, all of, all of the TEDx's around the globe are doing this very, very differently. I was a speaker at TEDx Asheville in 2010, 2011, not right. sure what year it mm -hmm. was. They needed somebody to talk about poetry mm -hmm. and invited me. Yeah. Oh, can you come and talk about poetry? We need a poet. Can you do it? And they knew I could speak on stage. And so I was able to go and speak at TEDx Asheville. I prepared my, for myself. I rehearsed. I put it all together. Evening of the show, I walked out and did my 15 minutes mm. and left mm. and had no interaction really in terms of rehearsal with anybody else. Mm. It was slot in, slot out, oh, slot in, God. slot out. And each person brought whatever they had. And the main requirement was be under 15 minutes. That was that. And show up. Well, you needed to be there, yeah. Or I suppose you could be have an empty stage and go, this is my, this is my art, the emptiness. Exactly. Emptiness for all would be the big idea. <laughs> you have a different approach with that. Go a little more into how it works in terms of, of choosing these people and how you edit them down to the top nine, the ones that go onto the stage. How does that work? And I'm asking that because I know how it works right. because I'm one of the members of the committee that helps choose this. Right. It's very interesting and you're absolutely right. It puts me as one of the people who choose in the mindset of, a, of somebody on a jury. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, I have to really look at this. I have to be responsible. I have to pay attention. I have to be thoughtful. Yes. I have to be fair. I have to respond emotionally. So what are the steps? This year we started with, gosh, I can't even remember the total number of applications. And these are written applications. So we break them up, send them to the selection team, which was five different teams. They read this application process and they rank them. And then we collect the rankings, we add up the scores, 
and get the highest rank, move them to round two. Round two is a two minute video. So of course now we have less, team of three, I believe, five teams of three, had 12 videos to watch. Again, they take them through a review and ranking process. A little bit more comment in that review and ranking process. And then we see what the highest rankings are and move them on to round three. Round three is an interview, is a on Zoom interview with me, with you, and with one of my other team members, Jen Germain. And that's when we actually get to put the idea with the human being, hear their voice, get a sense of the depth of their knowledge, but also the depth of their passion. And how is it possible to, for them to really clarify what their idea is? There's so much that we can pick up at a nonverbal level in that arena. And I think if you remember the last time we did this, there were people that we really, really loved their idea and liked them so much. But at the end of the day, what we're also looking for is this kind of this alchemy combination of the nine speakers that will take our audience from inspiration to information, from abstract to the concrete. Because when you produce a performance, there is a journey that you take your audience on. You're taking them on a ride. So you start out with that one speaker uh, that has energy and it can make that real strong connection. It kind of livens the space, fills the space, makes you kind of feel, like, oh, I'm glad I'm here today. I'm really glad I'm here. And then through the day, then we go deeper and deeper. And then at the end of the day, we come, we want to make sure we bring them back up and out. So we're looking for that perfect combination of speaker, of topic, and quality of the speaker as well. So there's a lot of kind of gut calls in this and aesthetic qualities that we're looking for in, in the selection of folks. When I was invited to do TEDx Asheville, I, like I said, I went on stage, did all the rehearsal myself, figured it out. Mm. It, I did okay. I've done it before. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem. You take these nine people after you choose them. I'd like for you to tell us how you work with them to create the cohesive show that you have in mind. And for those people listening, you all out there listening, uh, Barry has had many, many, many years of experience producing shows, producing dance concerts. She's as much a producer as she is an artist. So she brings all of that to bear. Plus she has a business called Stand and Deliver Asheville and she teaches speech and presentation to people all over the region and outside of Asheville area yes. as well. How do you approach building a show once you get those people together? One of the things I think I've learned over the years, being in a dance company, teaching students dance, they used to have a, a company called Story Choreography Projects, is that when you can, and I'll use this sort of metaphor, when you can create a stickiness with your team, your, your, your cast, there's glue. The audience feels that. They feel this collective thing happening. It's not these individual moments, individual ideas. Again, there's some thread that weaves them all together. 
And I actually got comments from 2022, people saying when they were at the theater, they felt a connection of not only the speakers, the sponsors in the lobby, the audience, they felt connected to each other because we led them on an engagement process. So for the speakers, I create that by bringing them together. And that's one of the reasons that we create that criteria of a four hour driving distance, because we wanna make sure people are making eye contact, that are in the same room, that are breaking bread together, that are having conversations. That is the work that I think really creates that fertile ground for connection, also for support. You know your group has your back, they're cheering you on. There's nothing better than that. There really is nothing better than that. When you have to get up in front of, of a group of 300 people, maybe for the very first time in your life, and you know, you know, I've got eight other people backstage watching me and cheering me on. So I do that in a lot of different ways throughout the three months. First thing is, as soon as they know, about a month in, we're gonna announce our speakers on November the 13th, I believe. December 2nd, there's orientation, speaker orientation. We all come together and sit in a circle and go through a four-hour process with each other. Again, it's information, it's sharing, it's uh, sharing some food and drink, all, all of those kinds of things. Once you gather in that informational sharing circle, and this is for people listening who don't have you around to help them figure out how to present their TEDx mm -hmm. talk in a way that will ring true on the stage for the audience. What do you do next? How do you rehearse these people? And in explaining that, think about giving some information to folks who mm -hmm. don't have access to what you do for the TEDx speakers here in Asheville. Right. I, I would say the first month I meet the speakers sometimes in person, sometimes on Zoom. And again, some of them really know where they're going and they can basically start developing a draft. Like a, we had a speaker in 2022, I'm, her name is Ginger Hubner. She knew what she did. She was deeply passionate about what she did. She had created her whole sort of world around her creative collaging. She had a hard time landing it in language. And so I was able to guide her what I call, what I call, a, it's a spelunking process. And we, I just kept asking questions. It was a question and then she would say something and I would, you know, just splat it up on a, on a whiteboard and, and write it down. And what began to show up was this path and she could begin to see her thinking path and so one thing led to the next, and it was like a map started to reveal itself on this whiteboard. And because she was talking it out and I was notating it on that whiteboard, all of a sudden it became visible for her. It was outside of her brain, outside of her, what was swirling around inside of her, and all of a sudden it was made visible. And when you have it made visible, then you can begin to manipulate it put something in front and beyond and behind and do this one first and go to the second, then she was able to just, it just took off from that point forward. Once it took off and she had the written outline or, or draft, 
How did she handle that? Did she memorize it? Did she learn the outline and fill in as she went through her, her speech? Because they're different styles. Yes. My style is walk out on the stage, close my eyes, I have the topic in mind, open my eyes, and go. Mm-hmm. With the outline in my head mm-hmm. and filling in as I go along. Mm-hmm. It's not improvisational. Other people have it memorized. Right. When I memorize something, even though I'm decent at it, yeah. it's not quite as original and energetic as when I'm just filling in story style by way of an outline. Yes. So how did she do that? And how do you deal with those two styles of presentation? So I'm going to go back to my dance training. So as a dancer, we learn choreography and we learn it by breaking down the, the movements and then we also learn it by connecting the movements. So you begin to feel the rhythm and you may stop and have to try out that turn again or, or try out that releve again over and over and over. There's a process of finally integrating so deeply that it is in my bones. And one of the things I encourage my speakers to do, my clients as well as the TEDx, is to get your content out in any way that you find most useful. I find that spelunking process is helpful. Speaking into a voice memo is really helpful because you are using language when you speak rather than your writing. Uh, when you get on a typewriter, you're, you're thinking more about readers rather than listeners. And so get that content out in the most authentic way, in the most, maybe even the most raw way, and then begin to formulate it into language so that you are massaging it, you are thinking about it. It's speaking back to you and informing you of, well, maybe that's not quite right, or yes, that is exactly how I want to say it. So you began to live the language inside of you and practice the language, not to memorize it, but to breathe it in, to integrate it in, to embody it. If they start when I encourage them to start, which is in December, by the time they get on that stage in March, it's going to just be like they are leading a toast to their best friend at a, at a dinner party or telling their child how much they, they love them or telling them a, a made-up story. It's just going to flow out of them. It's going to be who they are. It's going to be inside of them. It just arrives, uh, kind of like for you. But they, I encourage them to go through that process. Well, I've been doing this a long time, so I have mm-hmm. gone through the process. Mm-hmm. And I do, I'm often sometimes a little amused when people say, oh my gosh, did you just do that on the spot? Did you just do an improvisational bit and it all came out at once? And I'd I'd like to say, oh yes, I'm such a brilliant improvisational artist. No, it's all the time of letting the thinking happen, the timing, understanding the beats that then allow, hopefully, not always, allow that to happen. The rehearsal process, and again, this is for people who don't have you Mm -hmm. available to help them Mm -hmm. through this. You start in December, and then you said they will do the program that I suggest. It will flow on March the 15th. Now, December the 2nd to March the 15th, 
that's a fairly long time. That's mm -hmm. a little over three months, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, plenty of time to grow a garden. Yes. Plenty of time to grow a speech. Yes. How much rehearsal do you require of your team when you get together? Do you gather together or do mm -hmm. you do it individually? Mm -hmm. Give us a schedule on yeah. that so people can know what they could plug into if they're trying to do this on their own. So we use December for content development. And of course, that's also holiday time, so people are with family or traveling or whatever. But that is the content development. By, let's say, the first week, maybe first two weeks in January, that is our first in-person rehearsal. And nobody's full speech has to be fully fleshed out. That is a, an accountability date, <laughs> number one. And they also are going to be, again, sharing the space with each other helping each other. Sometimes the, the, uh, the speakers would, would give some feedback to the speaker. And now we also begin to hear their voice. We, I get to begin to see their presence, their little habits, their nervous habits. They're what I call unconscious adapter habits, tapping of their foot or their shoulders sinking or their voice quivering. I get to hear all of that because they are in front of an audience. It's a friendly audience, but it is still people. So we have, I think, two or three rehearsals in January. And again, some people can make them, some people can't. But I have found that majority of people take this very seriously and they are working this on their own and another thing that i recommend is that they also have a close to home team so that maybe by the beginning of february they invite their friends for a pizza party at their house i'm gonna i'm gonna buy pizza and beer for you and you have to listen to my speech that could be their very first audience that hears their speech that isn't one of the, their fellow speakers. So that's another thing that I do. And then we end up on the stage in February at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. We end up on the Diana Wortham stage. There's no lights, there's no sound, there's no curtain going up, any sparkly things happening, it is just Put your feet on this stage and reality hits in a huge way because all of a sudden they go, look at this huge theater. I'm feeling my feet <laughs> shaking beneath my knees. This is real. And that is a very important point because they, if they haven't followed the schedule, they will from that point forward. For the people listening, describe the theater you're talking about. I've performed on that stage more than once. I know what that theater looks like. In fact, the National Poetry Slam Championships in 1994 in Asheville had the final night on that stage. And my team from Asheville was on the stage. We lost the finals to another team. I think it was Cleveland. Ray McNeese was leading it. But I was on the stage. I know what it looks like. Yeah. Describe that environment for the people listening. It's a perfect size theater. There's 300-ish seats in the lower floor, about 200 in the balcony. The acoustics are beautiful. You don't really even have to have a microphone on that stage because the acoustics are so good. It's a beautiful maroon curtain that covers the front of that stage. The lighting behind the speakers is just absolutely brilliant. 
it's expansive. Any theater space is expansive, sort of like when you walk into a large church, you feel the ceiling is, is way above you, the heavens are way above you. The work for a speaker, any performer really, is to extend their physical presence all the way out from the left to the right and all the way up to that balcony. And that's part of the work that we do after the content is done and now we're starting to work on the delivery. That on the stage rehearsal is where we begin to cross the bridge. Their content is completed. Now we're gonna look at how are you inhabiting the space? How are you extending yourself? How are you extending that voice? Some people are in the audience also listening at the content, but I am really up there paying attention. Now we're, we're moving into the delivery piece. So the stage is beautiful, the curtain's there and open, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful, and I've been in there many times, and you're right about the voice projection. You can whisper on the stage yes. and people can hear you all the way to the top row mm -hmm. in the back. TEDx Asheville is connected to the bigger TED organization. Yeah. There are hundreds of TEDx organizations all over the world. A lot of technical considerations happen around TEDx as well. You upload videos, you shoot, and some of these videos end up on the TED platform mm -hmm. people can see globally. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of how that works and what are the requirements that you have to meet in order to rise to that standard? So one of the things that I learned actually in 2022 when we were in our dress rehearsal, which was a couple of weeks before the performance, the former organizer, his name is Brett McCall, was on stage. He was helping us with the technical things. And he came out and he said, and this was new information for me, so I'm now I know this, is yes, we're having this community event, this performance on stage, but the main goal is to capture a terrific, well, edited, put together video of this speaker. That's the main goal of this event, is to get a, a terrific video for them because that's where it goes viral. They want a video so that ideas are spreading all over the globe. So we have to make sure we keep that in mind as we set up the whole stage. We also have to inform the audience that if, and we did this in 2022, about three, four seconds into one of our speakers, her hair started rubbing against the microphone. So we stopped. We stopped right there. Don't normally do that in the middle of a performance. <laughs> oh wait, the line, actor forgot their line. That doesn't happen in TED. So what we did is she walked back up off stage, came back on and started all over again. It's that kind of thing. We have to ensure a phenomenal video. So you shoot each speaker, and then the speaker gets the video. And how do you edit those videos? Are you responsible for creating the video and then submitting it to TED? Yes, yeah, so we have a videographer, takes the video, does the editing process. For most of them, it's not really that much editing is required. Most of our speakers stick to the 18 minutes, sometimes even less. One of our speakers in 2022 went over, I think, to 21 minutes, so we, we had to cut some of his content because they won't accept a talk that's more than 18 minutes. We are looking for close-up, we're looking for wide view, those kinds of things. Basically, that's the editing process. 
And when it gets on the TED platform and it goes viral, how do you know it's gone viral? Numbers? Do numbers tell you what number indicates the video's gone viral? Yes, how many views? And one of the first things that I do with the speakers a couple of weeks after they are chosen, we get on Zoom with them and say, you need to get your platform prepared for being a TEDx speaker, which means you need to make sure your website is up to date, if you have a newsletter, you need to make sure that's ready to go. Kind of get them promotionally thinking. It doesn't just happen. You have to do it. People put it on their signature in their email. A lot of people will include it in their business newsletter. They will put it on social media. They do the work to spread their terrific accomplishment. Friends also share it podcast maybe with you and then you know you might promote it for them so they find partnerships in that process of promoting that video some of our speakers have i don't know exactly the the full amount i think it was like five million views on one of them well i would think the work you do with everybody and the rehearsals mm -hmm. the focus on the content mm -hmm. the development so that it's well organized mm -hmm. how could that do anything other than add mm -hmm. great Sure. chances for this to get big attention. Yes. Ted has this featuring speaker newsletter that and they featured I believe two or three of our speakers on that. That was a gift. And I will say as someone who's looking at these people now, I suspect we'll have the same result this mm -hmm. year in yes. 2024 because some of these folks really do have a lot to say. I agree. And it's it's very exciting to, to be part of it. In addition to the March 15th, 2024 TEDx Asheville event, as a community organizer, you are doing much more with TEDx than just yeah. one show per year or one show every other year. Tell us about how you're developing the rest of this out for the Asheville community. Yes, so as I said when, I, when we first started talking, if, when you say the word community, it has to land in very concrete actions. This year, what we are doing, and I think it's now going to be an established rhythm of TEDx Asheville. This year, we're holding what TED calls salons. These are smaller events that are not major stage events. They don't get videoed, et cetera. It's really bringing people together for conversations and engagement. So we're fondly calling our salons the Red Rug Roundtables. <laughs> and we've had two up to this point. And what our Red Rug Roundtables are doing is actually guiding our attendees. We've had I think 60 at the first one, 80 at the second one. They're very, very well attended. Is we are actually leading them through a TEDx process. The very first one, we introduced the theme, Meet the Moment. And we had six former speakers. We did a panel conversation. And then those six speakers took a group of 10 people each, circled up around a table, and there was a, a conversation, probably, I think it was like a 40-minute conversation. Powerful to look around the room and see a group of people listening so intently. They were fully present. Nobody was on their phones. There was no one on a cell phone in that whole space. 
There was no phone ringing, nothing. They were con- absolutely focused on listening and taking in and moving that conversation forward. I mean, it gives me goosebumps to sh- just to share it. So that was a very, very powerful and moving experience for all of us in- involved. We had no idea how that was going to turn out. And then we, we brought the audience back into the big room and asked for what did they, what were insights that they got from that conversation? What does meet the moment mean to you? And so what I did is I started writing down their ideas. What we then did is we took that content and we wove that into what we added to the website. We added it to the language of TEDx Asheville 2024. The second one we call the taste of TED where we had these tiny little red rugs, little teeny baby red rugs, and we had speakers get up and do a one minute pitch. I think we had 42 pitches that night. I mean, people were just ready to go. The audience again was in that room clapping and cheering them on. No phones were out. Nobody was looking at their phones. It was like support and phenomenal ideas and my team and I are going oh my gosh how are we going to get all these people up on that stage we have to figure that out the community had a voice that night 42 people from the community got to say this is who I am and this is what I believe our next one we're going to be doing we're going to introduce our our nine new speakers but we're also going to invite five speakers from the selection of applicants that didn't make it to give a five-minute little mini TEDx speech. Again, that means the community still gets a chance to be a part of TEDx Asheville in a smaller way, but they're still seen and heard and acknowledged. So it's not just about our nine speakers up on that main stage. You come, you buy a ticket, you sit in the audience, you clap, you listen, you leave. It is engagement, it is participation, it is conversations, and it is relationships that are building as well in our community. So it is fun. It is truly fun. So I'm hoping odd year, 2023, Red Rug Roundtables, three of those. Even year, we have a main event. 2025, we go back to our salons. 2026, we go back to a main event. So it's every other year. So we're tapping into the community, and then we're featuring our our ninth speakers. When I was living in New York, a group similar to what you have here in terms of your organizational group, all participated in the New York TEDx Salon Series. Room was donated, Mm -hmm. showed a TEDx video or a TED video, and then we circled around and everybody talked about the video. And we were there for an hour and a half and went home. Happened every Friday. I did have the same experience in those circles in New York as I did when I was participating in the first one that mm-hmm, you did. There's mm-hmm. something really magical about it. And when I first heard Meet the Moment, my first thought was, well, I've heard that before. Hmm, maybe, maybe not. When I came to the first Red Rug Round Table, you have to practice that yes. a bit. I witnessed how you had chosen something that was a common phrase meet the moment, everybody says it. And I saw it deepen, which is unusual. Usually a common phrase 
is just that and it stays on the surface and people say it all the time and they don't give it any thought. But you allowed all of us to give thought and we could see what that meant. Mm -hmm. And it invited people to prepare for every moment mm -hmm. because we're meeting every moment. Mm -hmm to be ready to show up and be yourself in those moments. Right. And one of the things that someone said, might have been from your group, is can I allow the moment to meet me? That was also a whole different great idea. Do I have to always be the one to meet the moment or can I allow them that moment to meet me? Which really sp speaks to the sort of the yin-yang if I'm meeting the moment, that means I'm taking initiative. If I allow the moment to meet me, I'm receiving. Yeah, and if I meet you and you meet me, we have to do it together. Yes. And the moment would be just like anything else we meet, except the difference between the two of us meeting, like today for this interview, right. and the moment. We are constantly meeting the moment, and the moment is constantly meeting us. Mm -hmm. It is our place in the mm -hmm. universe. Mm -hmm. Now that is quite compelling for me. And it also suggests communing with the moment, falling in love with the moment, dancing with the moment, doing everything that we do as humans, doing it with the moment. And then of course, one beat more with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Meet yourself mm -hmm. because you are indeed your moment. Right, right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's little and it's big, it's complex. So as you move forward into this rehearsal process, which is now underway, and I'm excited to be part of it, what are some of the emotional responses you are having? How do you feel personally about being involved with this? I've watched you. You told me early on, gee, I'm going to take over this TEDx Asheville thing. I just don't know. Little deer in the headlights sort of, gee whiz, what have I done now? How has that matured for you? Because you, the way you're talking about it now is very different than yeah. the way you addressed it two years ago. As the director, what is your mission? What is your calling? How are you standing in your authority mm. as the author of your own story within the context of the story that everybody's telling? Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that I witness in my speakers as they evolve through those three, four months, whatever the time period is between being chosen and landing on the stage, is that they go through this evolutionary process where they come to celebrate their gifts. They come to this place where they go, I really do have something to say. I really do have something to offer. Because so often, many of us don't see that. We are walking on eggshells or we're uncertain or there's a hesitation that we're, we're not quite sure we're good enough. Whatever that little tape recording is. And I've had my share of that. And I think now what I am very, very aware of, I fully embrace it, I fully celebrate it, is that TEDx actually captures all of the things that I've done in my life from production, performance, performing, these people are performing, language, stories, working with people, connecting people. I'm a terrific glue agent when it comes to creating community. I have done that all of my life. So it is weaving all of the things that I do so well into this 
incredible event, which is in my hometown, which is part of continuing a tradition that I grew up in, in Asheville. There were always innovators here. There were always creative people here. And I saw my people that were older than me doing phenomenal things, creating outlets for community. I mean, you look at Leaf Festival, like with Jennifer Pickering, the theater, the dance. So I'm continuing, I feel like I'm carrying on the Asheville vibe into TEDx Asheville by saying, yes, we are a performance and we are a community and we are about innovative ideas. We are about personal expression and we are about changing the world. And for people interested in becoming part of TEDx Asheville, how would they go about it? What do they do? What's the website? Probably the best thing to do is to go to TEDxAsheville.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up for our newsletter. Because that is really where we inform those folks that are on that newsletter what's coming up, what events are happening, when tickets are available, who our speakers are. They can also see past speakers on the website, which is a lot of fun to watch. There's some terrific former speakers. So that's probably the best way to get plugged in and really know what's happening when it's happening. And if somebody wanted to connect with you and work with you to develop a TED Talk outside of this region, is there a way they can connect with you personally? So how would they do that? Yeah, so my website is standanddeliverashville.com. Stand and Deliver Asheville. Every letter is spelled out. Standanddeliverashville.com. And of course, it could also simply be Stand and Deliver, and then you can put yourself or Asheville or wherever. Standanddeliverashville.com. That's great. So, Barry, thank you for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see who ends up on the TEDx Asheville stage. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for your help. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Barry Barton, director of TEDx Asheville. We have some time left before the top of the hour, so what I would like to do is to move into that time, building on Barry's ideas around how rehearsal, practice, engagement, having something that you're going to present be so familiar to you in your body that you give it no thought. It comes out as if you're having a spontaneous, excited conversation, conversation with a friend, someone whom you've talked to for many years and you're very comfortable with. When it comes to public presentations, one of the things people mistakenly think they need to do, they think they need to create something quickly. As Barry pointed out, the rehearsal process for TEDx Asheville begins in early December and goes all the way through until dress rehearsal just before TEDx Asheville opens March the 15th, 2024. So that's a little over three months of focused rehearsal time, developing the content, going over the material, getting the organization together, working, working until it simply becomes second nature. So success on stage is about repetition, 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 rehearse, rehearse, more repetition, doing it over and over and over again. After March 15th, those speakers will have their speech ready to go. And if anyone on that stage gets invited to go somewhere else the next week to present the 
talk again. It'll be fresh, it'll be well rehearsed, and ready to go. If the same speakers wait six months and never present their speech again, their talk again, it will still be there, but it will be less performance ready. So another thing to remember when you're working on your talks, your speeches, whatever you're going to present, the rehearsal does build in muscle memory. It builds in body memory. So somewhere inside of you, the speech lives. If, however, you don't present it and you let it sit for two or three years, it will take a bit of rehearsal time to bring the speech back up or the talk back up to performance level. Barry touched a bit on performance in our conversation. I'd like to expand a little bit on the idea here. Performance often is thought of as a presentation that's big, loud, sometimes overdone. And while that is true, you see a lot of performances, big, loud, and overdone. You've probably also seen a lot of presentations, a lot of performances, that were the opposite, understated, quiet, thoughtful, and very effective. So when you are thinking about performance, consider expanding the way you might define it. So here's a definition of a performance, one that's useful and easy to get your head around. So here it is. Performance happens whenever you have one person in front of you paying attention and listening to what you're saying or whatever you're presenting. If you have ever been in a group of writers, you've probably heard someone say, often with a note of pride, I read my work, I never perform it. When I hear that, I have to hold my tongue a bit because, as I said, a performance is when someone is sitting in an audience in front of you. It can be one person or it can be as many as you like. A performance is when you are inviting someone to engage in the oral tradition, you presenting something to them. Now, some people who read their work read it so poorly that everybody in the room falls asleep doesn't mean they're not performing. It just means that they're performing poorly. They're under-rehearsed. They haven't given it much thought. And they don't even realize performance elements are coming into play even though they think they're only reading. The only way to read your work in public and be successful is to sit down in front of an audience, open your book, and read it quietly without looking up. That would be reading for an audience. If you utter a syllable, you are performing in one fashion or another. I've heard plenty of people read their work on stage and do it in such an effective way that it's hard to stop listening. And the reason why someone who reads their work on stage can do it in such an effective way is because they've rehearsed, they've practiced, they understand the material they're reading, they have a sense of what they're trying to say, they know the rhythm of the text that they're working with, and they also understand the audience psychology. What do I mean by audience psychology? When you gather in a room with people, you're gathering in a communal setting. It's not just you on the stage. You're there with a group of people, all of whom have agreed to share in this experience that you are playing a role in, and yet you're not 100% the driver. It's the entire group that drives the experience. That's the performance. The entire room 
is performing. And I say the entire room because when Barry was talking, she mentioned how beautiful the Diana Wortham Theater is and how you can whisper on the stage and people all the way in the back can hear you. So in a sense, the community consists of the people gathered in the room, and yet the room itself is also part of the energy of the of the moment, the energy of the time you're spending with the people. So it's certainly a collaborative effort on everybody's part. So regardless of whether you read from the page, whether you memorize your work and present it from memory, or whether you are telling a story based on an outline you have memorized in your head, and you're adding the elements to the story as you go along through the outline, regardless if you have one person or 60,000, you are still in performance. And when you remember that, and you remember that the most important part of the performance is for you to be yourself, and the way you can be natural and easy on stage is through rehearsal. So the audience is there, you're on stage, well rehearsed, being yourself. The audience feels confident that you are going to hold them in, in good stead. They will relax into what you say, and there we have it, the collective performance. The entire space performs itself, everyone included. That's a delightful thought when you think about it. So on the note of rehearsal and performance, I have been rehearsing A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas since 1987. Now, how can that be the case? Well, the reason I've been rehearsing it since 1987 is because I present it every Christmas in the month of December to whomever would like to hear it. For example, on December the 3rd, I'll be at Somos in downtown Taos, uh, 1 to 2.30 p.m., presenting A Child's Christmas in Wales. Now, the reason why I've been rehearsing it every year is because, one, it's long. Two, I love to perform it and say it to myself, regardless of whether I have an audience. And three, because it's somewhat complicated as a literary piece, it requires a great deal of review. I said previously that if you don't perform something for four or five months, you tend to lose it. So the reason why I've been rehearsing A Child's Christmas in Wales since 1987 is because I will take six or eight months off and start rehearsing it again at the end of October, getting ready to present it in December. 1987 was a relatively long time ago, and having spent all of these years presenting, performing A Child's Christmas in Wales, each year I've discovered something new. Each year, it's a different piece. Each December, I'm a year older, and I bring that experience to the performance. Even so, with all of that experience, I will probably recite A Child's Christmas in Wales aloud to myself 50, 60, sometimes even 100 times before my dates come in December to present it. So I never, ever assume I'm going to know it. I have to reacquaint myself with it every time. And it's never a chore because I really do love the language. So I'll give you a sample of A Child's Christmas in Wales. Mothers, sisters, and aunts scuttled to and fro bearing terrines. Auntie Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered by the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dozy had to have three aspirin, but Auntie Hannah, 
who liked port, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big-bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins in the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man-of-war, following instructions for little engineers, and produce what might be mistaken for a seagoing tram car. Or I would go out, my bright boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill, to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, to plod through the still streets, leaving huge deep footprints on the hidden pavements. So that was a small sample of A Child's Christmas in Wales. Another line in that prose poem by Dylan Thomas that I really, really enjoy goes like this. And birds the color of red-flanneled petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills. The reason I like that line so much, it's a good example of onomatopoeia. You can see the birds coming, and then you hear the birds go by your face or by your ear, and then they move on. And birds the color of red flanneled petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills. So from a rehearsal point of view, I've gone over that line hundreds and hundreds of times, feeling how the tongue sets itself up in the mouth in relationship to the teeth and the, the lips. And the last thing I have to say about rehearsal and choosing something to perform, in order to really throw yourself into it, you've got to love it. Barry mentioned in our conversation, the TEDx Asheville speakers take it very seriously. In order to take something seriously, you have to embrace it. You have to care about it. You have to love it. And once that happens, the rehearsal becomes an ongoing pleasure. And when you have a lot of pleasure, it's very easy to come back and do it over and over again. So if you're working on a TEDx talk, or if you're just thinking about finding something to perform, present to your friends, and if you happen to be in Taos on the 3rd of December, around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and you feel like dropping by Somos Literary Space, I'll be there. Maybe you will be too. Meanwhile, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. I really appreciate it. If you would like to find out more about what I'm up to, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And you can always email me, nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. We're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a really great place to go to make that process start to happen. And I offer a free Imaginative Storm writing workshop every Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. It lasts an hour. If you'd like to find out more about that, jamesnave.com, and you scan down from the top of the fold. One click will take you to the Zoom link and a bit of a description. Maybe you can join us. We would love to have you. 
So for now, like I said, thanks so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. And hey, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>